15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with our good friend, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm honoured to be your good friend. <laughs> oh, no, I'm honoured that you are my good friend. Uh, no, it's good to see you again. Hope you're well. Yep, all good. Excellent. Now, on today's uh, program, we are going to be looking at lots of stuff, which is what we do on the Space Nuts podcast, astronomy, space, science and stuff. Um, we're um, going to talk about your little trip down to Adelaide shortly, oh, yeah, which uh, is and, uh, very exciting. There's something happening down there. Uh, we're going to find out about the magnetic fields of um, M87, uh, the black hole, and um, uh, an echo, another echo from the exo-asteroid known as Borisov, which uh, we talked about only recently, but this was um, the, the second such exo-asteroid that passed through. Of course, um, the space doogie was the first, Oumuamua, <laughs> which is no longer a doogie, it's a cow pad. Cow but um, we, we explained that last week. Uh, some audience questions as well about uh, whether or not other planets have magnetic poles. Now, I've never even considered the possibility. So there you have it. We'll look into that and how to photograph distant objects, photon rates, um, whether or not dogs and cats can live together in harmony. We're going to cover it all this week on the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, but first, Fred, uh, let's talk about your little sojourn yeah. to uh, the city of Adelaide, the city of churches in South Australia, yeah. Yeah. where there is uh, going to be um, the Australian Space Discovery Centre. Is that is it officially opened yet or is it still in the... It is, isn't it? Uh, no. <laughs> no. So, okay. So it was, it was launched. It's, launched. You know, it's, it's a space thing, so it was launched. But in fact, it's not open right. to the public for about another month, a little bit more. They're, they're, okay. They're, okay. Test, they're, they're test running it with, I think, you know, groups, booked groups and things of that sort, just to make sure everything works out all right and all the displays hang, um, you know, they all hold up uh, with yeah. the... Because uh, the public... Um, with all due respect, the public can be quite rough on exhibition things. You know, it's a, it's a tough gig for an, an exhibitor. Um, but the story is that, uh, well, first of all, the story starts with the Australian Space Agency, which came into being a bit more than, I think it's two years ago now. Um, but they, mm. they got their headquarters, which are in Adelaide. Um, about a year ago, they moved into what used to be a hospital. Uh, and it's a repurposed building. It's called Lot 14. Uh, it has lots of high-tech um, you know, organisations within it, including the Australian Space Agency, um, which set up shop there, as I said, about a year ago. Uh, my connection is kind of twofold, but, the, but it's basically because the government department I work for also o overlooks the Space Agency. It's part and parcel of the same. It's the same ministerial, ministerial portfolio. Um, so uh, um, we... I know for the, the past year or so that I've been involved with this, they've been planning uh, an exhibition, a public exhibition, the Space Discovery Centre, to showcase Australia's place in space, um, the, uh, advertise the way 
uh, Australian industry contributes to space, including the Moon to Mars uh, program uh, that NASA has. They're, they're part and parcel of that. And also to let people know just how much space activities uh, affect their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, nearly everything we do has got a space connection, usually through communication satellites or weather satellites or resources yeah. satellites, the whole deal. So m many people don't realise that, and that's really the focus of the exhibition. Um, the exhibition was was essentially set up um, under contract by Questar. I beg your pardon, by Questacon. <laughs> Sorry, Questacon, <laughs> which is the the, the National Science Centre. Questar is uh, for a make of telescope <laughs> from a long time ago. Right. <laughs> um, Questacon, um, they uh, that's the, the National Science Centre, and they uh, took responsibility for for building the exhibits. Uh, Questacon mm -hmm. is also part of the same government department that I'm in, so it's a, it's a little bit incestuous, but it all worked very well. And my involvement was via Questacon because um, uh, we had a, a working group uh, to, to look at the kind of exhibits that you might put together which would convey the issue of space ethics. It's all about the ethics of spaceflight um whether we should explore Mars, what uh, you know, whether we should put satellite constellations up—all of these things are ethical issues, uh, which uh, focused on in the in the exhibition. So I had a bit of an input to that, along with a number of um, other people who are far more. Uh, perhaps professionally involved with ethical issues than I am. My interest is, is more of a hobby. Um, so that was my contribution. So I got a, an invite to the VIP preview on Tuesday night, and uh, this is that, that was my first trip out of New South Wales in more than a year, and the first wow. time I've been on a plane for more than a year. Uh, it was an interesting experience, but to be honest, being on the, the aircraft itself was just the same as it always was, except we all had face masks on. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite hard to drink your Qantas coffee with a face mask on, but they, they let you take it <laughs> off. You know. yeah. So is the Australian Space Discovery Centre a permanent facility? Yes, it is. It is. Um, but it'll uh, have... And, it'll have um, evolving and changing it, it will. exhibitions yeah. within. Yeah. Right. So fact, it's like I, an art gallery for space. A little bit like that. And in fact, that's a really good point because I, um, I happen to know, um, through Marnie, in fact, the... Um, uh, the, the the new manager of this space centre, uh, a guy called is a young man Brennan uh, Dew. His name is, and he's a really interesting character. And he used to work for Marnie when Marnie was running the Sydney Observatory. Uh, so, um, and he's now scored this job. And we talked about getting exhibits in. And I'm a little bit interested because you know I draw cartoons, which I've been doing for the new book. Some of them are space related. It'd be lovely to have some of my cartoons in the. Wouldn't in the exhibition. Um, so, it, yes, it, it, it is permanent but evolving. Uh, the, the one thing I didn't mention was that the day after the preview, and that, so this is yesterday now, the Prime Minister actually opened it um, to great oh. fanfare, so it, that had a high profile. Um, but there is a travelling version of it, Andrew, which is going oh, all around it? Australia, So and, and Questacon are looking after that, and I bet you anything it comes to Dubbo fairly early in, in oh, the yeah. proceedings. Well, Qu Questacon has been here... Uh, multiple times over yeah. the years and we used to take the, the kids to the showground to um, get involved in some of the experiments and, and hijinks right. that they, they got yeah. up to do, uh, got up to and we did actually take the kids to the Questacon facility
facility in Canberra once and uh, went around and experienced some of those amazing things that they have on show there. Um, the earthquake machine, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed <right>. that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, and, and I, I'm pleased to say that uh, Judy and I will be in Adelaide in September, oh, yeah. September, October. Y- so y- we're, you, we're going to go and you can go and see. Definitely it. have a look at this. Yeah, yeah go so. and have a look. You'll love it. You will absolutely love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know I will. <laughs> I didn't get to go to the one in Hong Kong. They've got a space centre there, but it was closed the day we planned to see it. Mm. So, uh, or it wasn't open until 1pm and we had to catch a flight to Sydney. So, uh, missed out on that one. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to go down there. So, uh, it sounds like it's going to be a terrific place. Yep. So, uh, all, uh, all credit to um, the department and... Uh, that, that beeping's the dishwasher. Sorry. Okay, that's all right. So, just just a word to all you Aussie space nuts. You know, you're going to be able to go and see this, and uh, when yeah. when the time comes, make sure you go and catch up with it. Most definitely. All right. Uh, it's called the Australian Space Discovery Centre in Adelaide. All right. Moving on, Fred. Let's um, talk about our f- first. Um, interstellar story if you like and this uh is a focus on um uh, magnetic fields of the m87 black hole uh the event horizon telescope has uh, been keeping a beady eye on this indeed that's right um I, I suspect these are actually observations that were made round about the same time as the the black hole picture was constructed mm. i'm not clear um i haven't in fact read the uh, the paper yet um i've got a link to it but i haven't read it um i'm not clear whether these are more recent observations but the, remember the uh, event horizon telescope it's this conglomeration of eight uh different radio high frequency radio observatories uh which are all in the western hemisphere and so they're all looking at the same uh, part of the sky and they made these incredible observations of m87 the uh, galaxy about 55 million light years away. Um, it's uh, a galaxy with probably the biggest uh, central supermassive black hole of any galaxy in our vicinity. So it's the, the nearest uh, super duper uh, black hole, which is why they chose that because the bigger the black hole is, the bigger the event horizon is. And actually, uh, M87's black black hole's event horizon is about three times bigger than the solar system in diameter if you Good if God. you count the the outer solar system as being um, where neptune is uh, it's colossal and uh, so that makes it an easier target um as as well and that's why on the 10th of april 2019 i think it was um we saw that great announcement of the first image of the event horizon of a black hole but what's now happened is that we've seen something that in many ways um puts a, a, another piece in the jigsaw puzzle. M87 is known to be what we call an active galaxy, which means it is uh, its black hole, its supermassive black hole, is, is essentially gobbling up stuff around it very voraciously and squirting it back out again as these two jets per, perpendicular to the disk of material, the accretion disk. So um, it's, uh, that's what makes it active. It's relatively quiescent at the moment. Um, and so that, that was another reason why it was thought to be a good time to, to look at it. Um, but the, 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 the mechanism for a swirling disk of material to turn into jets going up and down from a black hole is thought to be 
strong magnetic fields that it's all apparently the magnetic fields have got more of a pull than the black hole itself which sounds a bit uh-huh. comical but because the magnetic fields are generated by the black hole and what the scientists have now done is analyze the polarization of the signal that's coming from that bright ring around the event horizon that kind of donut and polarization we're all familiar with it from polarizing sunglasses but it actually um in astronomy, uh, when you can study the polarization, it tells you about the magnetic fields that are present. Mm. Um, partly because it does things like align magnetic fields align dust particles, and the alignment of dust particles is something you can measure uh, with um, with with polarization. So they've done that, um, and what we're seeing now is the result. It was released last week, I think Wednesday. Um, uh, late Wednesday night our time just too late for my ABC radio broadcast which is always a pain um, anyway the, the, um, the, 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 uh, you know, the image shows essentially they've depicted the way the magnetic fields actually spiral around the event horizon and that kind mm. of um, fits the, the puzzle of how these jets of material come out the, the, the amazing thing Andrew um, here's an amazing fact these jets of material are 5,000 light years long. So they're not just, you know, they're not uh, little things that pop out the black hole and they're really nearby. So you don't need an event horizon telescope to see them. You can see them with any radio telescope pretty well. Um, But they're generated by the forces from within the black hole. The forces are just, they're unbelievable, just unbelievable. And it's just hard to fathom that kind of power. Yeah, uh, exactly. The the enormity of this thing, as you described at the beginning, is, is, is... hard enough to comprehend but the but the awesome power within is it's just it's beyond me i just well, uh, well it's beyond you know. us all really i mean you know we mm. yeah sitting on that jet on the way to adelaide when it took off i thought yeah this is great this is power power personified but you know it pales into insignificance yeah next to what's going on in a black hole <laughs> And this might seem like a dumb question, but, uh, you know, we're still unravelling the mysteries of black holes. We don't understand them. Um, We're sort of piecing information together bit by bit to try and create the big picture, which will ultimately answer our question one day into the future. But what about magnetic fields? How well do we understand those? Yeah, Um, actually, probably better than... Um, anybody might pick up from our conversations because we don't often talk about them or we're going to talk about them again today uh, Mm. in regard to planets. But, um, yeah, the magnetic fields pervade the universe and they have a very important role. Um, Our galaxy has a magnetic field. Work work that one out, you know, 400 billion stars, 200 billion stars or whatever it is. It's got its own magnetic field. Um, And we... You know, we know that they are important in many astrophysical processes. Uh, one of my former colleagues here, Brian Gensler, who now is in Canada, I think he runs the Hertzberg Institute in Canada, um, his speciality was uh, cosmic magnetic fields. And you'd, you'd only got to talk to him for five minutes before you realise that the whole universe, <clears throat> whole universe works on magnetism. And that is actually one of the questions that the Square Kilometre Array radio telescope is being built for. It's one of the fundamental questions that it will ask. This is the one in Western Australia and South Africa. Um, how did the universe's magnetic fields come into being? Um, you know, what, a, what a great question. And I yeah. think, are you still there? What's happened to... Google Chrome? Oh, it's trying to update it. No, it's all right. Sorry. Something, <laughs> something funny happened don't to you, my... Don't you- 
Yeah, you just vanished don't you it. love? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, you, you got to love the way these uh, these people who create these these uh, browsers and, and certain interfaces uh, don't consider that people are actually working when yeah. they want to do the update. <laughs> Yeah. We have, I know it's a bit of sideline chat, but we have a computer at the radio station that we use when we haven't got live programs to air. So we run automated programs. But Windows will do an update in the middle of the night and knock us off the air. It's just, and you can't yeah. stop it. No, I know. Well, that this is Fortunately, um, nothing happened there. It didn't interrupt the thing. It just another window appeared, and you, this lovely face of Andrew Dunkley, that was there, suddenly was a blank screen. Um, I, but I've never yeah. heard I've never heard that word used to describe <laughs> my face before. I'm not. Uh, not <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so the square kilometer array. One of its quests is how did the how did the universe get its magnetism? What a great mm. what a great thing to ask about. I'm glad I brought it up. I'm glad you did too, okay. because we don't talk about it enough. Uh, no, we don't. Yeah, there's a lot that, to say. As you said, um, <coughs> one of our one of our audience questions is about that very thing, so we'll get into that shortly. But uh, for now, we're going to take a little bit of a breather on the Space Nuts podcast episode episode 246. Thanks for joining us. Okay, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. Hi, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. This is Space Nuts, the podcast. And Fred, let's uh, move on to our next topic, uh, that of uh, the exo-asteroid Borisov, which we have talked about a few times, and I think as recently as last week we, we had a bit of a chat about it. Uh, but now they've been um, sort of crunching the data that they gathered from from this, which was a sort of a, a, an incidental or almost accidental finding. But they they managed to get a lot of data and they're going through it. And now now they uh, they seem to have um, picked up on some kind of echo. Well, no, the, the, it's an, a, a metaphorical echo. Uh, oh, echo, right. The, echo. the echo was gotcha, from last gotcha. week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry about that. I should choose my words more carefully. <clears throat> Excuse okay. me, Andrew. Um, no, but but this is a really interesting story. So it, it's the first interstellar comet. So Borisov is definitely not an asteroid um, because unlike Oumuamua, which showed evidence that it was outgassing something because its orbit changed, uh, but there was nothing visible, and that's what's led to this idea that it's a piece of the crust of a, a, a an exopluto, something like Pluto, but in another solar system, and the, the solid nitrogen has, has broken off, and what, that's what we're seeing, the interstellar cow pat. Mm. Um, Borisov has, was known to be a comet from the first because it developed all the features that we see uh, on comets from the solar system, it developed a coma. This is a cloud of gas, glowing gas around its around the nucleus, which is the the, the flying iceberg part of the comet. <coughs> so it developed that. It also developed a tail, <coughs> which is, of course, excuse me, Andrew, I've got a frog in my throat here. Probably an interstellar one. The the, the tail comes from uh, the solar wind, the the wind of uh, radiation and particles coming from the sun that essentially blows the tail uh, out behind the comet in the anti-solar direction, the direction away from the sun. So it was known from the beginning to be a comet. And um, there, there was some pretty rapid analysis 
done on uh, Comet Borisov because of course as soon as you see this glowing tail you can clap a spectrograph on it and find out what what elements are in there what ions actually of, of uh, elements and molecules are being given off by the comet and mm. there were some unusual things found in that I can't remember the details but there were some slightly unusual ratios of one uh, uh, you know one um, uh, molecule to another uh, compared with the ones that you find in the solar system. But they weren't unique. They weren't completely different uh, from what we find in the solar system. And so that sort of reassured astronomers that they're on the right track. This thing is definitely from outside. It's, it can't possibly belong to the solar system because of the orbit that it's in, um, charging through the solar system. Um, but what we've seen now <clears throat> is um, new information and this has come from uh, principally, I think, the Very Large Telescope, uh, part of the European Southern Observatory, which, uh, as I'm always pains to point out, Australian astronomers have a strategic partnership with, so we can use those telescopes. Um, they have telescopes down in northern Chile. And um, some observations that were made, of course, the comet is now sort of way out. I can't remember where it is, but it's in the outer region of the outer planets. It's much, it's stopped out gassing, so it's very hard to observe. So these would have been observations that were made during 1919, 1920, when uh, the comet was at its closest to the sun and was at its most active in the sense that it was giving out these plumes of gas. Um, but using the, uh, the very large telescope, uh, and in particular an instrument called FORS-2, which is a spectroscopic instrument, it, it has an additional string to its bow, though, which you might not be surprised to hear what it is it can measure the polarisation as well as the spectrum of the, the light that it's looking at. So <clears throat> there you are. We've talked about polarisation in the, the first story. Here it comes again because this polar, polarimetric technique, as it's called, uh, lets you look at the structure of dust that's coming off. Uh, the, uh, the, the the comet because as well as releasing gas when a comet outgasses there's all clouds of dust come out as well and in fact they develop two separate tails a, a plasma tail and a dust tail um, so you can look at the dust and the polarisation lets you as I think I said a few minutes ago it lets you look at the alignment of dust grains um, and it turns out that the these dust grains are aligned in such a way that the astronomers can deduce that this object has never flown near a star. Um, so that's why it's wow. been described as the most pristine comet ever found. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's um, venturing into the inner solar system uh, is the first time that it's been near a star and it's, it's actually had these dust grains released. But there's enough of a polarimetric signal in the dust grains and it's about alignment and things like that to tell these astronomers that this is the first time it's done that. And that is really quite a big discovery. Um, there is mm. all, only one other comet, and you'll probably remember this because I do, uh, is back in the 1990s, I think 1998 or thereabouts, there's a comet oh. called Hale-Bopp. Uh, and yes. Hale-Bopp was very bright. It was, uh, I think it, I think it was the one that stretched halfway across the sky when it was at its brightest. Yes, um, oh, it was spectacular. That's right. Now Hale-Bopp had similar characteristics 
in the sense that it was a pristine comet. And in fact, uh, it wasn't quite as pristine as Borisov. Uh, but what, uh, what the astronomers are saying is that uh, Hale-Bopp is the most similar comet to Borisov. And Hale-Bopp mm. is thought to have made only one passage of the sun uh, before we saw it, if I can put it that way. So yep. it had not been affected by the solar wind and the solar radiation, and that's what they're saying about Comet Borisov. So it turns out um, that it was a pristine object. Uh, and by that, I mean its composition is very similar to the, the cloud and, of gas and dust that it formed from. The, the, this is the, you know, the, the blob of gas and dust that the whole solar system formed from. Comets are formed in the outer regions of that and it, it's got essentially it's completely unaffected by starlight or star radiation um, and then the comets fall into the inner solar system that's how we're you know the familiarity that we have with them but mm. Hale-Bopp is thought to have only done that once and um, and Borisov now is thought to have never done it so this was the first time it had passed near anywhere near a star. Yeah. Until it came into our part of the world, and we we gave it a bit of a dust up, so it's yeah, it, it's <laughs> hightailing it out of here in a hurry. Thinking, I'll write that down. That's really good. That one, I like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, now you said it's in the outer reaches of the solar system. Now that must mean it's absolutely hurtling along. If yeah. it's gone that far, that yeah. fast. I, I'm I'm sorry, I can't give you exact details of that. But it, yes, that's the thing. Um, you know, it, it is very high speed. And I guess by that I'm talking about 20, 30 kilometres per second, um, perhaps even more than that, um, mm. uh, relative to the sun. Uh, it's sort of comparable with um, the speed of New Horizons, which was one of the fastest spacecraft ever launched. So yes, it's it's uh, on its way. Um, disappearing. Now, it, it will never come back, will it? Unless no, it's no, it won't. Somehow, no, um, it will hurtle off somewhere else. Yeah. So um, the technical details are: it's in what's called a hyperbolic orbit. Um, so remember that the planets move in elliptical orbits because they're closed. They're they're, they're orbits that go around the sun. Um, comets are usually in what are called parabolic orbits, which means it's like an ellipse but infinitely long. Uh, and that's because the cloud where they come from is so far away that the ellipse is a very, very long one and it looks like a parabola. But then the next step, this is in the series of conic sections that you learn in mathematics, the next one is a, hyper, a hyperbola, which is a very open uh, path uh, because it's going so fast, it, it, it just sideswipes the sun and then it's slightly deflected rather than being brought back in, a, in an ellipse. That's how you know it's it's, um, it's interstellar. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and uh, unlike our localised comets, yeah. which generally come and go, um, you, but the time spans are, are still quite massive. They are. So That's you, right, um, yeah. Some, some comets orbit in hundreds of thousands of years. You know. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think, um, uh, talking of bright comets, I think uh, Comet McNaught, which uh, was fabulous in our evening skies in 2007. Uh, I think that's got a period of about 100,000 years, which means poor old Rob McNaught, who I saw only a fortnight ago, uh, he, uh, he's he got to wait a long time before his comic comes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he could just watch reruns of Days of Our Lives and he, no, he still it, probably would. He probably wouldn't have to watch that twice to catch up. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I'm not that sure that he's so engaged with things like that. <laughs> oh dear. I find those shows so frustrating. Uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen one, Andrew. So. <laughs> no. Well, no, definitely not. Uh, there we are. Um, more news on Borisov, and I'm, I'm guessing that uh, as they keep crunching data, we'll find out even more, and uh, we'll, we'll let you know once we have learned it ourselves. Uh, this is the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 246 with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. And thank you to our patrons who have been financially supporting the podcast, uh, many of them for, for quite a while. Uh, your support is appreciated. We are aiming to get uh, the podcast to a point where it's fully supported by the audience and uh, that means uh, you know obviously we need to get more patrons now if you would like to sign up as a patron go to the space nuts podcast website spacenutspodcast.com by coincidence and uh, click on the support button up in the top right hand corner and all your options are there on how you can if you'd wish uh, financially support the podcast it starts at uh, i think at four dollars fifty a month but there are different packages available under whatever circumstances suit you uh, and yeah look look into it uh, you don't have to do it but it's it's an option if you would like to uh, become a, a patron and a financial supporter of the space nuts podcast keeps the lights on see the light there see how we did that um, anyway uh, we appreciate uh, the support of our patrons and we're looking for more and more ways to um, to you know value add to the podcast through uh, through our patrons. So we'll be telling you about those sorts of things in the not-too-distant future. Um, Hugh and I have been discussing some ideas, and I like, a, I like a couple of them very much. The word adequate came up. Not going to tell you any more about that just yet, but <laughs> wait for the T-shirt. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's where we're at. And uh, thank you again if you're a supporter uh, of the Space Nuts podcast through Patreon or Acast or Supercast or... Uh, whatever platform you choose. Now, Fred, we're uh, going to take some audience questions. And uh, first up, we're off to the uh, the um, land of the long white cloud in New Zealand. Hi, it's Christine from Dunedin, New Zealand. Um, I'm just wondering how many planets actually have magnetic north and south like Earth and how important is it that an Earth-like planet also have a magnetic north and south pole. Um, really love your podcast. Discovered them last year and used them whenever I drove to work, which is half hour either way. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Christine. Love the accent. Love the accent. And, uh, yeah, thank you for, for listening. And um, obviously, Christine hasn't been listening long enough for those New Zealand jibes that I threw in some time ago. So I'm, I'm kind of glad I haven't done that lately. But it's all it's all in good humour, Christine. I promise you. Um, no, I, I do have a soft spot for the the Kiwis. Of course, uh, being someone who's um, got a very strong interest in the First World War. Um, everyone knows about the Anzacs and, and because we combined with the New Zealand uh, soldiers to become the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps and fought together in World War One. And, yeah, I, I do have a very um, strong feeling about that con connectivity between our two nations, even though in, on the sporting field we hate each other. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we've got more in common than most other countries 
that neighbour each other have. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. It's very, it's, very special. It's, it is a really mm. special relationship, which I love. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, Christine's question is, uh, do other planets have magnetic poles? Now, we've been talking about magnetism a fair bit today. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good question, and I've never even thought about it before. And, and the answer is yes. Uh, well, l- let's just think about the solar system. Um, the, the planets that have um, that don't have magnetic fields are outnumbered by the ones that do. <clears throat> so uh, the, all the gas giants have got really strong magnetic fields. Mars doesn't. We do mm-hmm. on Earth. Mercury does have a surprisingly strong magnetic field uh, given how small a planet it is. And um, that actually Mercury is a really interesting case in point because it also has, and we know know this from, uh, you can measure these things from the orbits of spacecraft around planets. We know it's got a big iron core, a much bigger iron core than you'd expect. And so one of the reasons why we think Mercury is like it is, is that at some time in its early history, it was smashed into by something else that broke away most of the mantle, the the region outside the core. Otherwise, it would have been as big as the Earth and Venus. Is Um, that right? But yeah, so it's thought to have been smashed up a bit. So what you've got is a planet with a, a thin mantle, relatively thin mantle, and a big stonking iron core in the middle. And the iron core mm. is, of course, the secret of magnetic fields. Um, if you've got something um, metallic, something um, ferrous, in fact, with iron, and iron is the most common metal <coughs> throughout the universe, um, that uh, is going to give you magnetism. Uh, and so it's uh, actually likely that far more planets have magnetic north and south poles like the Earth does than the ones that don't. The ones that don't are probably relatively few and far between. And so Christine's other question is, how important is that? Well, in in our case, it is very important because it's the magnetic field that shields the Earth from the radiation of the sun, the, the, the magnetic particles that could be very harmful, um, their, their, their radiation, and that's not something you want. Uh, with our magnetism, uh, those uh, magnetic particles are, are sort of shifted away so they're not bombarding us all the time, as they would, for example, on Mars. Um, that's one of the hazards of humans going to Mars because it is unlike the Earth in that it doesn't have a magnetic, uh, strong magnetic field. So... Um, does an Earth-like planet have a magnetic north and south pole? Yes, because if it's Earth-like, it will have a, an iron core, the same as ours, and will get these magnetic poles. So a great question. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that uh, in, in many ways we are yet to discover about the exoplanets. The, you know, we now know of more than 4,000 exoplanets uh, orbiting other stars. Yeah. If you have enough information on them... Uh, and some of the observations that we can make do give us this information, then you can get their density, the density of the planet. And that then tells you whether it's a rocky planet or a gas planet. Uh, So you've already got hints from that, that there might be magnetism out there. In fact, the gas planets have magnetic fields as well. As I said, the the magnetic field around Jupiter is by far the strongest in the solar system. So uh, very common. Yeah, uh, seems likely that there's always going to be magnetic fields out there. Well, so are they generated by different sources? You, you talked about Earth and the iron core and Mercury, the iron core that, that um, 
is that what generates our magnetic field? And if that's yeah. the case, what's generating it out? You know, what, what's generating the magnetic field that um, encompasses our whole galaxy? Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, it, it is the iron cores that generate. It's what's called the dynamo effect. It's basically what goes on in, in a dynamo. Um, dynamos generate currents. Uh, those currents probably flow through the core, electrical currents flow through the core of the Earth and generate the magnetic field. It's, um, you know, the physics is pretty well understood. I'm not an expert on that, but I get the general drift of it. But for something like the galaxy's magnetic field, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Does it come from the aggregate of all the individual magnetic fields of the stars? And by the way, the sun has a really strong magnetic field as well. Uh, and that's what drives the activity in the sun. Um uh, you probably realise that this is the magnetic edition of Space Nuts. It is, it is yes. I think we've talked about it in every story so far. This is this is how we suck you in. That's, yeah. how, that's <laughs> what it is. It's just magnetic. But the universe itself, you know, that could be something different. And that's what the astronomers who will be using the square kilometre array down the track to look at the magnetic field of the universe to try and work out how it originated. Mm. Uh, whether it, there is some whether it is still all about uh, dynamo effects or whether there's some more fundamental underlying mechanism within the yeah. the early universe. And it, it, is it a highly variable thing? Because we, uh, Australians would be well aware that we have an island called Magnetic Island because yeah. the magnetism there is more significant than it is in other places. So why would that be? Is that because of the ge geology? Yeah, I think so. In, I think in the case of Magnetic Island, and forgive me, I, I, I you know, this is uh, as Not much an thing. assumption as no, but I think it is because of high iron content. Uh, yeah, in a lot of hematite probably in the in the rocks. Um, mm. I'll check that, but but yes, so uh, the geology does it effect certainly on on the Earth. It has an effect, but it is a variable thing, as you know, because the pole the pole at the moment, the North Magnetic Pole, is whizzing across uh, Siberia. Or, or sorry, it on is its, yeah on its way towards Siberia. Um, yeah, uh, so it's something that changes. And you can see why that would be, given the structure of the Earth. You know, I mean, we talk about the core, the inner core, which is solid, and the outer core, which is liquid. Those are the iron cores, and then there's a mantle on top. We've got this lovely picture of it. But when you look at the natural landscape around and see how much variation there is in it, just looking, you know, well, I can look out to, to hills here at, um, at, at Terry, Terry Hills, as you might guess, uh, and, and you, you know, you see the, the way the topography varies. So the topography of the, the mantle and the core are going to be vary. There'll, there'll be blobs mm. of high density, blobs of low density. And if all that's sloshing around inside, then you're going to get variations in the magnetic field as well. Indeed. There you go, Christine. Um, yes, was the answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, and thank yeah. you for, uh, thank you for uh, sending a voice question in to us. Let's uh, move on to our next inquisitor. Hello, Andrew and Fred. Uh, my name is Åke and I'm from Sweden. A couple of nights ago, I captured an image of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, through my telescope. Uh, due to the distance to the galaxy, approximately 25 million light years, and not so many photos per time unit hit my camera sensor, so I had to collect about eight hours of data to get a decent final image. So my first question is, how many photos per time unit would you say hit my camera sensor, which is about 
two and a half square centimeters. And the second question is, after traveling 25 million years through space, how is it even possible that the photons don't diffuse and make my image blurry? Thanks for a great show. Uh, I've enjoyed all 243 episodes so far. Thank you. Okay. Uh, very, very good to hear from you again. Uh, and I think you mentioned there were pretty technical questions when we were talking about them earlier, Fred. Uh, photons per time units yeah. and uh, diff diffusion of photons over uh, vast distances. They're, they're really uh, yeah, fascinating questions, really. What well, they are, and they go to the you know the fundamentals of astronomical observations with telescopes. And I have to say that I used to have all these numbers at my fingertips when I was doing this sort of thing myself. But I've had to look things up um, because uh, I've got a bit rusty on it. So photons are the subatomic particles that carry light and magnetism, of course, just to get magnetism into this as well. It's the electromagnetic. Uh, um, uh, subatomic particle um, and yes so from the you know when we're when we're looking in normal daylight or artificial light and seeing things that are going on uh, you are seeing gazillions of absolutely gazillions of photons um, but astronomers looking at very faint objects get interested in you know the smaller numbers of photons for many years i used to use an instrument called the ipcs which is an acronym for the image photon counting system this was in the 1980s and it, it actually was a machine that literally counted individual photons uh, and formed an image with them and and the things i was looking at I was looking at very faint variable stars um, in the center of our galaxy and you could kind of almost see the photons coming in one by one uh, as as it built up the uh, the image, um, and I had yeah I remember having signals that were barely there. It was a tough gig actually to extract information from them. So um, astronomers deal in photons kind of by the handful, which is what Orca's getting at, I think. Um, I didn't do the calculation for him, and there, there are so many variables here. The you know, uh, a galaxy and the Whirlpool galaxy is a beautiful galaxy, and I'm sure Orca's image is stunning. Um, but galaxies are, you know, they've got a what we call a surface brightness, the uh, number of magnitudes per square arc second. Magnitudes are the scale that we use to measure brightness. Um, and the surface brightness of galaxies is relatively low. Um, it, it's uh, not that high. And, and so that's why it takes eight hours to, to form an, an, an image. Um, because you're just getting bundles of photons from each arc second. What, what I'm going to mm. do is just um, for Orca's benefit, um, there is a lot on the web that you can discover about this. Um, and there is a really pretty technical page that's aimed at professional astronomers. Uh, it comes from, it's on the Harvard uh, University website. Um, it's actually CFA, which is the Center for Astrophysics. So that's web.cfa.harvard.com. EDU. Uh, I won't give you the full reference, but um, I, I noticed that the two names attached to this uh, HTML are, are Fabricant and Hooker, Dan Fabricant and John Hooker, two very, very big names in the world of astronomy. But it's a website called Absolute Magnitude, sorry, Ab Astronomical Magnitude Systems. And it goes through the whole definition of how we define this scale of brightness that we use. Uh, but there is um, a section which is called Photon Flux. 
and it's uh, it is quite complicated and you've got to spend a bit of time to figure out what's going on because it converts magnitudes via Janskys which are a unit that are more often used in radio astronomy but they're a photon uh, a flux unit uh, and you, you you can you can end up by working out how many photons you're receiving and let me just give you one example um, which is how many um, what are called V-band photons. Now, these are photons in the visible band of the spectrum. So rather than the blue or red region, it's the greenish region of the spectrum. How many V-band photons are incident per second on an area of one square metre at the top of the atmosphere? In other words, you're neglecting the atmosphere from this, uh, from a V equals 23.90 star. Now, that is a very, very faint star. 23rd magnitude, it's nearly 24th magnitude, is at the limits of observability for a for a big telescope, for a four-metre telescope. You're talking now, though, about a one-metre telescope. You've got a one-square-metre uh, aperture. That's the, you know, the, the air collecting area of the telescope. And the answer is... 2.42 photons per second. So, you know, you're talking tiny, tiny numbers. This yeah. is a faint object, but they are still there. You can count them, you know, if you've got photon counting devices. Um, it's a really interesting topic. I, I, I won't go into any more detail, but um, Orca, uh, check it out on the web. There's a few websites where people discuss this kind of thing, and um, you, you will find, you, you will get some idea of how many photons w w was coming to you, uh, to your camera sensor, when you took your image of the Whirlpool Galaxy. Uh, and Orca's other question... Um, yeah, have, why, have, why they don't diffuse? Why they don't diffuse? Distances. That's right. Yeah. So, and that's because um, in the vacuum of space, there's nothing to diffuse them. Essentially, these streams of photons. So, you, what you've got, if you imagine the the galaxy itself, this beautiful looking object, every part of that galaxy is squirting photons out, and they travel. You know, they travel um, in in all directions. But each one only goes in one direction, and that's the one that you pick up uh, in your telescope if it's pointing the right way. Uh, and they, they don't start diffusing until they hit the Earth's atmosphere, and that's the problem with the atmosphere. They do exactly what um, Orca's talking about uh, over you know the last 10 kilometres of their journey. They travel for 25 million years with no diffusion whatsoever, hit the atmosphere, mm -hmm. and then um, all bets are off, um, if you've got, uh, unless you've got really good atmospheric conditions which is why you build telescopes on mountaintops. So, uh, yeah, it, look, uh, they're great questions, and um, it's good to think about things in the photon regime because that's really what professional astronomers are, uh, are, are, uh, are focused on, if I can put it that way. Yes, indeed. And uh, we, we've talked about the subatomic particles and, and their various roles before, and that's one of the great mysteries they're trying to unravel. Um, whether or not there's there's some kind of subatomic particle that uh, that carries uh, some of the more mysterious things that we're trying to learn about, like dark energy, uh, dark matter, and uh, who knows what else is out there that we haven't yet discovered. As we mentioned last week, that um, again could be attributable to yet to be discovered subatomic particles. So yeah. it, it's a it's a fascinating world. I'm I'm pretty sure they'll unravel it one day, there, Fred. I'm. I'm very confident that we, we learn so much so fast these days. It, uh, it's only a matter of time before before someone has a uh, you know a brainwave idea and goes, "Oh, I might go and check the." Oh, that's what yeah. dark matter is. It's, <laughs> it's dry peanut butter. 
<laughs> what a, that's what it is. Oh, there you go. Oh, and look, you might have something there, Andrew. I'd, I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd no. Check that no. out. <laughs> Could be. All right. Uh, thanks again for your questions today. We really appreciate it. And, of course, if you do want to send us an audio question, you can do that via our website, uh, spacenutspodcast.com, and click on the AMA link. And you can um, you can uh, record your question there, or you can send it as a text question via our email interface. Now we do have a whole bunch of text questions that have been sent to us, but they were they were compiled on a spreadsheet that we can't read because <laughs> for some reason it's formatted itself into one line. So the question is: Hi, Andrew and Fred, really love the pot, and the rest <laughs> of it's over the, over the, over yeah. there. Yes, next door. <laughs> so we we haven't figured out yet how to decipher that. So um, if you have we, sent we, us text we, questions, we haven't ignored them. We just can't read more than the hello. I'm Sarah, <laughs> and I'm from Santan, yeah. and that's about it, uh, or whatever. But uh, we, we'll we'll try and get to them because you you d- certainly deserve a hearing as much as anybody else. So um, uh, leave that one with us. Uh, we'll get back to you in a light second or two. Maybe longer. Um, But anyway, uh, thanks again for your support of the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, I think that brings us to an end. Oh, 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 something I haven't mentioned for a long time is the Space Nuts shop on our our website. Um, While you're looking at recording your question, just click on the the shop button as well and have a look at our our vast array of product, our T-shirts, our polo shirts, our mugs, our caps, our cups. Uh, you might like to um, get yourself something special uh, as a Space Nuts listener. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you could wear that proudly down the street. What the hell's a Space Nut, mate? Uh, well, it's a, new, it's a new form of pistachio, <laughs> you should know. Um, but anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Fred, as always. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Andrew, as well. And, uh, yeah, keep, keep up the good work. I think we, um, we, we, we explore many, many different aspects of the universe, from, from pistachios to magnetic fields. We do it all. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't think there'd be too many other podcasts that combine those two things into the one subject matter. Yeah. Mm, all right, Fred, nice to see you. Talk see to you soon. later. Take care. Bye for now. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here, the vast team of three that put together the Space Nuts podcast. Hello to Hugh in the studio. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.